Morning. Okay, if you've got a Bible, if you could uh, turn to Luke chapter 7. Uh, we're going to be in verses 11 to 17 today. Um, been going through Luke's gospel for the last while, and this is where we get to. So let's, uh, without further ado, let's see uh, what happens. Luke 7, 11 to 17. I'm reading from the New Living Translation, and oh, stuff will appear. But for the moment, um, well, you know, it's all right. Uh, Luke 7, 11 to 17. Soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin and touched it, and the bearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Great fear swept the crowd, and they praised God, saying, A mighty prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. All right, it's good whenever we come to a uh, story in the Bible uh, to look at the context of the story. Why is this story here? What's happening here? And the obvious question I come to first when I see this story is, uh, why on earth is Jesus in this, going to this little village called Nain? Why is he there at all? Is it just going where the wind's taking him? Is he just kind of, is he going to visit a friend? I mean, what's happening here? And actually, you might think we might need to just to speculate on this and to a degree I suppose why this particular village we do however we do know uh, why he's here because it says in Luke chapter 4 43 we had it a couple of months ago I think Jesus is at that point in another town and they really like him there so they say Jesus stick around here but he says no I'm not going to stick around here he says in Luke 4 43 I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too because that is why I was sent he must preach the kingdom, good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too. Other towns, for example, like Nain. So we can assume he's going to this town, village of Nain, to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what he's doing. And that's what Jesus tended to do uh, in any town he went. Now, unfortunately, Luke or none of the other gospel writers give us a transcript of his message in the village of Nain or in other places. They don't, we don't get his PowerPoint slides or anything like that from this presentation, which you might think is a bit of a shame. But they do things slightly differently, actually. We get to see Jesus' message, not often in kind of, this is exactly what Jesus said. We get parables, we get some teaching, but also we get the examples of the stories that happen in those places. And those stories actually give us the message of the kingdom. And this passage here, I'd argue, is, is one of the clearest examples of where we see events unfolding in this place, in name, real events that really happen to real people, but that provide us with an incredibly clear picture and visual illustration of the good news of the kingdom of God. And what I'd like to do today is I'd like to outline what this message is. Jesus thought it was so important, the good news of the, the kingdom of God, that that is why he was sent, he said. And so I want us to get a handle on what this message is. What is the good news of the kingdom? And I want us to see, as we look at this story, we'll see it. Um, we don't see that what he what exactly taught when he got past this, but actually how the good news of the kingdom is presented in this very miracle that we see here. And for some of you, these will be kind of new, the big ideas here, and there'll be new ideas. And what I'd like to do is kind of give you some categories, really, to help you to understand uh, the world better, and particularly where everything's heading as well. 
For others of you, the stuff we do today uh, is going to be reasonably familiar. The stuff about the kingdom, you'll have heard this before. And what I'd like to do for you is really bring the kingdom of God stuff from up in the realms of theology and theory, and like, yeah, I understand that, I understand that, and bring it right down as, as practical as it can be of how does this make a difference in the real world. I imagine for some of you, you'd have heard teaching on the kingdom of God. And sometimes for me in the past, that's been, yeah, I understand that. Tick that off my list. Now, this is about, this passage is about the kingdom of God in the real world. 2,000 years ago, we want us to think, how would that affect us, the kingdom of God now in our situation? Okay, so let's go back to the beginning of the passage. Let's go through it a bit slower and see uh, what's going on here and how it shows us about the kingdom. 11 to 12, we've done it a minute ago, but we'll do it again. Have we got, ah, and it's back as well. Great, fantastic, good work, guys. Um, Soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain, and a large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. Now, on a quick flick through this passage, you might imagine this is really a a miracle story with a a very small encounter of two, possibly three people. So for example, you could flick and think, well, what happens here is Jesus comes to the village. He meets a widow, obviously with her dead son. They interact, dead son healed, end of story. But actually, that's not the flavor of this at all. This isn't a meeting between individuals. This is a meeting between two crowds. Look, you can see them in verses 11 and 12. Jesus his disciples, and a large crowd followed him. That's the first crowd, okay? Let's call it the Jesus crowd. We'll be calling it that uh, as the rest of the time goes on. We've got the Jesus crowd. It's a large group of people coming towards Nain. Let me ask you, let's get into role a little bit. What do you imagine life in that crowd would have been like? Put yourself there. You're coming, wandering through the, uh, through the hills of Judea in the Jesus crowd. What's the tone of that crowd? I imagine... Um, well, for many people, I think they th- think about Jesus. As Jesus, he was a very, he was good, he was righteous. He always did the right thing. And sometimes the misunderstanding there is that means he was a kind of do-gooder who actually was no fun to be around at all. Now, if you've been at any of our uh, talks on Luke, hopefully you'll know that that wasn't the Jesus that Luke portrayed, which is really the only Jesus there is, uh, I suppose, because the other Gospels agree with that. But Jesus was a guy who brought joy with him wherever he went. Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at uh, when... Pharisees had exactly this problem. They came to Jesus and said, Oi, why are your disciples always having so much fun? It's not on. You're religious, for goodness sake. Let's pull your act together. And Jesus said this. He said, look, will the, will the guests uh, fast when the bridegroom's with them? It's all about fasting, that thing. You might remember it from a few weeks ago. Uh, anyway, um, but it was, would they fast when the bridegroom's with them? He said, look, I'm the bridegroom. When I'm around, it sets the tone. And the tone is one of celebration. It's the tone of joy. This crowd would have had that tone because Jesus was there. There would have been a buzz. There would have been an excitement about this crowd of of people coming along. I reckon in this crowd, who is this large crowd that followed him? Well, surely there'd have been some of the people that Jesus just healed weeks before. And others who'd been been sitting around waiting. They'd been hearing teachers who taught the same stuff. And suddenly, he's one who teaches with authority. And they're with him and there's an excitement. And there's a real buzz about this crowd. There's a joy here. Not just a... A joy, though, I'd say there's also a forward-looking nature to this crowd as well. Because it wasn't like in this crowd, they were like, remember all that stuff Jesus has done. Well, let's just grip hold of that and we'll go around with him to remember it. No, there was a real sense that this is just the beginning. Something is coming even bigger around the corner. 
I mean, let's, let's remember the Jewish people for centuries had been awaiting this mysterious figure called the Messiah. The Messiah will come, he'll fix all our problems, he'll sort out the Romans, he'll do this. And there are whispers even at this point, surely, of, it's Jesus, could he be? Could he be the Messiah? Is he the one? There's an, there's an anticipation here. There's, there's a joy in the moment. There's a looking forward to the future. There's a hope in this crowd. And I mean, it doesn't say it specifically in the verses, but I think we can imagine this sort of buzz of life about this crowd as it comes walking towards Nain. However, it finds itself coming straight crash bang wallop into not an, a couple of individuals, but another crowd. It says in verse 12, the young man who had died was a widow's only son and a large crowd from the village was with her. So what's this other crowd like? You've got the Jesus crowd full of life, joy, buzz, hope. Come around the corner, suddenly another crowd comes. Well, this crowd is a very, very different beast. What you got in this crowd? You've got a dead boy cut short way before his time. You've got a widow who's already lost her husband and now is left utterly alone. And you've got a crowd of mourners. I mean, it's not difficult to think of the tone of this crowd. This is a crowd of tragedy. It's a crowd of loss. It's a crowd of despair. Maybe the crowd was silent. What obviously funeral processions nowadays would be. More likely, there would have been a sound of weeping, sound of wailing coming from this crowd. That's how they, they would have done those things in those days. There's absolutely no joy here. There's no hope. What hope could there be? It's a widow who's lost everything now. She's going out of the city. People are with her to bury this boy. Tell you what, there's going to be no one with her when she goes back. She's completely on her own. Uh, no one left for her in her immediate family. And as the first crowd would have had the buzz of life about it, this crowd is literally defined by death. And they collide together. And actually in this collision, what we see now is the beginning of a painting of the backdrop of the good news of the kingdom of God. Let's pull out some things we see in this collision. The first one is this, and it's the backdrop that there are, there are two kingdoms in the world at the moment, and we can see them in both crowds. If you think, what did Jesus teach when he taught about the kingdom of God? Well, this would have been the backdrop, the context, and we see it here. There are two kingdoms Jesus taught. The Bible's very clear on this. And firstly, there is the kingdom of God, okay? The kingdom of God, you might think, well, what does that mean exactly? It's a, it's the, think of it as the jurisdiction of God, the area over which God rules. Now, it's probably better not to view that geographically, but uh, although we could go further than this, probably in terms of subjects would be better. Who are the people who've submitted themselves to God's rulership? Well, those people are in God's kingdom. They are under the king. So, What's it like then in the kingdom of God? What's God's kingdom like according to what Jesus taught? Well, the kingdom revolves around one person. One person sets the tone of the kingdom and that person is the king and that person is Jesus. It says in Romans 14, 17, very succinct definition of the kingdom. It says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom. Why? Because it revolves around Jesus, who was utterly righteous, who was the Prince of Peace, and who came to bring great joy. That's that's what the tone of the kingdom is. Jesus talked about bringing life and life in all its fullness. And actually, the life of the kingdom is shown by the key event that founded the kingdom. If I was to ask you, what event founded the kingdom of God? And if you're asking about America, what founded that? 
kingdom, I suppose you take like the Constitution or the Civil War or something like that. Well, in this kingdom, what, what event did it? You, know, you, you could offer, well, maybe when Jesus came as a baby, possibly. That was an important moment. Or maybe when, when Jesus died on the cross, maybe. I, I'd opt for, I'm not going to be too picky on this one, but I'm going to opt for a different one. I think the key event of the kingdom is the resurrection of Jesus. That's the key event of the kingdom. After that is when the kingdom exploded into life. Romans chapter 1 uh, says, uh, describes that event. It says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Now, what that's not saying is that before the resurrection, Jesus wasn't the Son of God and suddenly he got the badge. Yeah, you're good enough now, badge. You're the Son of God now. now it's not saying that at all. It's saying that before the resurrection, he was the Son of God, but in weakness. It's almost like he was wearing a disguise, son of God, but I'm undercover. Now, the minute the resurrection happens, it's like, look, you see, you see who I really am. He's, he's the son of God in power. He's the king. That's, the king comes, and he's been bringing the kingdom through, but it's then that the, the kingdom explodes. And in that event, we see the characteristic of the kingdom, and the characteristic of the kingdom is this life that Jesus talked about, life as it's meant to be lived. And as Jesus talked about the kingdom, there's a direction to the kingdom of God as well. Don't think of the kingdom of God like Luxembourg. Okay? Kingdom of God is not Luxembourg. There's a quote. Luxembourg is kind of, I guess, if you're in the kingdom of Luxembourg, you think we've got our little borders and uh, we've got to make do with them, really. We're kind of stuck, landlocked, sort of small place. The kingdom of God is not like that. Okay? The kingdom of God is a growing kingdom. Okay? Jesus used a number of pictures uh, for this. He said that the kingdom of God is like a, a mustard seed, smallest seed. Suddenly, well, not suddenly, actually, it takes a while, the biggest tree and all the tr- birds of the, the air rest in its branches from seed to tree. It's a growing kingdom. So a different image Jesus is, uses on another occasion. The kingdom of God is like yeast. Not much of a, a baker, to be honest, but I know yeast, a bit, little bit of yeast, not, not too much. Doesn't look very impressive. You've got a massive bit of dough. Well, no, it's like yeast, the small bit goes in, and after a while it goes through the whole dough. The, the influence of the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, it might look very small now, it's going to spread. This kingdom has a future, and it makes it a kingdom of hope. There's a hope in the kingdom of God that the life of the kingdom is going to grow, is going to spread, and is going to take hold. If you think at this point, well, wait, we, we talked about this a minute ago, well, we did, because the kingdom of God is, I think we can see very clearly, in the Jesus crowd, in the story we've just seen, that Jesus has a picture of the kingdom, life, hope, buzz, going somewhere. But Jesus' good news about the kingdom also came with the news that there is another kingdom. There are two kingdoms at work in the world today. I don't know if you knew that. The kingdom of this, we could call it, there's a number of names given to the other kingdom, but let's call it, there's one biblical name, which is the kingdom of the world. Okay, and that stands opposed to God's kingdom. Now, let's be clear. Important we know this. God is the king. That's it. Objective fact. He's the ruler of everything. However, human beings turned away from God's rulership. Human beings rejected God, and as they did it, they set up this opposing kingdom. That's the story of the fall in the Bible. It's a story that each of us reruns in our own life as we sin and reject God's rule and turn against him. And as Adam sinned that first time, it was like a new opposing kingdom was established. And since, since that time, actually, when anybody's born, they come into this kingdom of the world. It's the default setting for humanity. It's the kingdom of this world. And you might ask, well, what's this 
kingdom like? Well, the kingdom, again, its tone is set by an individual. Whereas the face of the kingdom of God is Jesus, this kingdom's got a face as well. And the face of the kingdom of God is, is a different person. It's Adam. Adam, the first human who was said, Adam, look, your garden's yours. You've got perfect relationship with me. Don't eat from that tree. Just, that's all you have to do. I don't want you telling me what to do. I don't want to be under your rule, God. I don't want to be in your kingdom. You know what? I'm going to do it differently. And suddenly there's a new kingdom. Adam is the face of this kingdom. And the punishment that Adam received for his action is the, defines this kingdom. That's the event. That's the key event that defines this kingdom. You might know the verse. God said, that tree. Don't eat the tree. When you eat from it, you will die you will you will die and that punishment happened and that punishment is not just a one-off thing then that Adam died I always read often read that story and think well he's not dead though is he is he about to drop dead when God curses the snake no he hasn't he hasn't I thought it would be like snow white you'd eat the eat the uh, apple and you just die no he lives for years and years no death has come into human experience it's not you will die in that moment now death comes in and death now defines completely um, the experience in the kingdom of the world. And as the kingdom of God has a, has a momentum, has a direction, so does this kingdom. But it's a very different momentum. It's a momentum, a gravity towards disorder and towards chaos and towards annihilation. It's the, the decay of death creeps into the world, not just into, into the act of dying, but into everything that happens to us. If the kingdom of God's momentum is like a... Hmm? Like a man crashing into a stand. It's like a mustard seed growing into a tree. This momentum of the kingdom of the world is like water going down the plug hole. That's the momentum of the kingdom of the world defined by death. And again, you can see where we're going. I'm sure you can see the method. This kingdom is very powerfully seen in the funeral crowd. Two kingdoms. And suddenly you've got it mapped out in front of you. The two crowds come colliding together. First question for you today, lots of theory so far. First question, simple question, it's an important one. Which kingdom are you under today? Which kingdom are you in today? Which crowd are you in? Are you with Jesus, submitting to the rule of God? Or are you just going with the flow in the kingdom of this world? Now, I'd imagine for some of you, you'd say, yep, well, know this one, became a Christian, I'm in the kingdom of God. For others, it might not be so easy as that. You might be saying, well, wait a minute. Give me the other options, Johnny. I'd like to know where else I could stand here because I've never signed up to anything like this. I've never booked into being part of a kingdom. I haven't become a Christian. I know that, but I haven't become anything. I'm just kind of waiting. I'm on the fence. I'm on a middle ground. I'm the third option. Well, actually, the Bible would disagree with that uh, analysis. The Bible would say, no, no, there are only two options here. You're in one kingdom or you're in the other because the Bible teaches that through our own sin, through our, our own acting out what Adam did in that garden, God gives this instruction. Maybe through our conscience and we say, you know what, God? I don't want anything to do with your rule. I'll do this, thank you. Well, actually, we don't just then become independent. We side ourselves with this other kingdom, with the kingdom of the world. And we're then left to deal with life as it is in that kingdom. A life that is ultimately defined by death, by its ending. Now, I need to be clear on this. I'm not saying that every moment of life 
in the kingdom of the world as a non-Christian is like being in a funeral. I'm not saying that. I, I really hope there's nobody here who every moment of your life is like, yeah, I read this funeral story, hopeless, joyless. I'm not sa- saying that. Just as I'm not saying that for a Christian, every moment of your life is like fist pumping and like, yeah, joy, like you're on some sort of crusade. That's, that's not how it is as well. Christians, we still get sick and we still die. It's almost like we're under God's kingdom, but it's, it's like the world, we still see the remnants of the kingdom of the world, that we've got foot in both almost, and we still see those effects. But being in God's kingdom means even as those things happen, there is hope and there is joy as we move towards a day where we'll see the being uh, fully under the kingdom and the kingdom coming in its fullness, and a day with no sickness and no death and no pain and no suffering. It's different. We still get sick and die. Bad things happen. But we're moving towards somewhere there's hope and joy even in those things. If you're not a Christian, like I said a minute ago, I hope your life is punctuated by much joy and happiness. But I think actually if, if we're to zoom out slightly for a moment and we say, well, what defines life? Just live just like that. It's in the kingdom of this world. Let's forget about God, afterlife, all that sort of thing. Well, actually... Surely we'd have to say that normal human life is defined most tellingly by one event. And it wouldn't be the the birth of your first child or the day you graduated from university. No, it'd be by death. If death has the final say, all our joys are fleeting and all our hopes are misplaced. It's what defines life in the kingdom of this world. You might not have ever reflected on the terrible deal you get in that kingdom because you never thought there was an alternative. You thought, well, that's, that is just life, isn't it? I want to tell you today, there's an alternative. There's a different way to live. There's a whole different kingdom you can come under, and it's Jesus's. Jesus has given us an option. He, Jesus died and he rose again, defeating death once and for all, so that we could switch kingdoms. He purchased a passport for us that meant that we could go from one kingdom of misery and death, however happy it might be at the time, death will come and slam down and take you out, passport to come over to Jesus' kingdom. How do you enter it? Will you accept Jesus as Lord? That's what you do. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Saved from that kingdom, brought into a new kingdom. That is the good news of the kingdom. I wondered why is it good news? Well, that's good. That's, uh, uh, that is good news and many people in this room would have experienced that good news. You're not a Christian today. I'd really ask you to seriously and carefully consider your position and what you're doing as regards these two kingdoms because I'd argue there is no more, difficult, uh, more um, important decision that you can make. So therefore, in this story, we see the backdrop of the good news of the kingdom. We see these two kingdoms and it's vital, straight off, Jesus would have made this clear, it's important which kingdom you line up with. However, also in this story we see something else. We see how these two kingdoms interact, how they meet together. Okay, let's go back. And the second point, first point is about the kingdom in the story is there are two kingdoms. Second point is that God's kingdom takes initiative uh, over the kingdom of the world. In the stories we've seen, you've got the two crowds, which are like the two kingdoms, and they collide, don't they? There's a collision. Now, I know I'm telling you to view things from all sorts of angles, but for a moment, let's, let's view the crowds colliding like a traffic collision. Let me ask you, who would pick up the bill for this crash? It's fault, is it? Which crowd crashes into the other crowd? I think Jesus' insurance would suffer for this one if it was a traffic collision. Okay, because it's Jesus' crowd that crashes into the other one, mostly, although it's a kind of unsuspecting bash together. 
Jesus' crowd is the one who's they're away from home. He's on a mission. He's moving forward with purpose. And then it comes around a corner and crash, bang, wallop into a funeral procession. The funeral procession is moving. But really, let's be clear on this. The widow has not been organizing this and going, yeah, let's just hold it off for another hour. I, I think he's coming. He's on the way. Everybody's quick, right, everyone? Get down. He'll be sorted. Let's go. There's no sense of timing and organization from the widow's party to meet Jesus. No, they're just going out to do their thing, walking around. Bury the body, come back. Jesus, on a purpose, away from home, comes and crashes, slap bang wallop, into the uh, crowd of the, of the funeral, into the kingdom of the, this world. And we can see this in this, a clear picture of how the kingdom of God interacts with the kingdom of this world. How did the kingdom of God come? Well, the kingdom of God came as the Father looked down on earth in compassion and sent his Son for us. How did that happen? Was it due to the petitions of people? Was it due to people really sorting themselves out and kind of going, they're ready now, good, they've done what they needed to do, they've fitted all these requirements, now I'll send my son, the kingdom will come. They, they initiated this. Was there a committee sent from the kingdom of the world to, to, to heaven? Right, God, we understand the fall, big mistake. We've got it now, it's taken us a while, but we're really sorry. Could you do something about it? Maybe send your son? Die for us, it'd be great, that would fix things out. And God says, yes, you've come and that's a brilliant idea. I'll do that. Is that how it went? No, that was not how it went at all. God sent his son from the initiative, from within himself. Compassion. He's all compassion. He, he'd had it planned since the very fall. But it wasn't because of a, a petition from people. It wasn't because people came and asked him. It's because he sent it. Romans 5 says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was God's timing. He set the time. And it wasn't to do with our power dragging him down from heaven. No, it was to do with the fact we were, we were far from God. We were ungodly, anti-God. God says, no, I'm taking initiative and I'm sending my kingdom crashing towards your kingdom. You're unsuspecting. You, don't, you haven't asked for me. You don't expect me, but I'm coming right now. The kingdom of God is the initiative-taking kingdom. And actually, I don't know if you noticed this, this is in the story of the miracle we see in Nain, this is a very unusual aspect of this miracle. So far in, in Luke's gospel, all the miracles that we've seen have either involved people interrupting Jesus and coming to him going, please heal me, or have been at meetings where Jesus has been teaching. So, for example, Simon and some other family members, they, they come to Jesus and they say, my mother-in-law's really sick. And they ask him and he comes back to his house and he heals his mother-in-law in Luke 4. Or another chapter, the man with leprosy sees Jesus. He runs to Jesus. He falls on his face and it says he begs him to heal him. He comes, he takes the initiative and Jesus says, okay, your faith has healed you. And even when Jesus takes the initiative. So for example, Luke 6. Uh, man with a shriveled hand Jesus is teaching he sees him and he just pulls him up and the guy doesn't seem to do anything Jesus just heals him but even when he takes the initiative there, it's in the synagogue Jesus is teaching there would have been a post up Jesus at the synagogue today that man would have come to hear Jesus there was a level of expectancy and faith there already because usually so far people have come to Jesus well this passage is very different Jesus is on the open road He's away from home. He, he goes to the people of Nain. They don't come for him. They haven't asked him 
They haven't sent a message out to him. His crowd crashes head on into theirs and then he initiates and changes everything. Look what it says, verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. Then he walked over to the coffin and touched it and the bearers stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. So how does this affect us? How does this initiative taking aspect of the kingdom affect us? Well, if you're a Christian here, you're a subject of the kingdom. But at the same time, you bear part of the responsibility now for bringing the kingdom forward. To paraphrase Matthew 11, verse 12, it says, The kingdom of God is advancing forcefully. And forceful men and women lay hold of it. They set its direction now. Jesus gone to heaven, he sent his spirit. Well, who leads this crowd now? Who steers the crowd? Well, Jesus does through his spirit. Yet forceful men and women take hold and go, right, we're taking the kingdom. We're taking Jesus to others. This is my challenge to us as a church. Are we waiting for the world to come to us? Or are we taking Jesus to the world? What do you think of your life? With that, think of what we do as a church. How how is that working for us? Do we do we uh, demonstrate this, this um, characteristic of the kingdom? Listen, like I said, the forcefulness of the kingdom lies in the fact that God did not wait for us to call on Him before He sent His Son. He did not wait until He got it, we got it all together. No, the kingdom came like an advancing army and sweeps us up, like almost like prisoners of war. That's the sort of wording that's often given. Often I think we can think to ourselves, no, no, wait, when I became a Christian, I made a decision, I initiated, I went forward to that appeal, I had that conversation, I said, gee, God, okay, I give in, I repent, I believe, and then God came in. Is that how you see your salvation? That's how you see your salvation. I imagine your, your Christian life will be passive and waiting till you give God permission to act. Waiting, oh, God, do something over here, I'm praying for it, go and do something, would you? Now, that's not what happened when you got saved. If you become a Christian here, this is what happened. God's Holy Spirit blew. Who knows where he blew? You don't know where he, he goes like the wind, Jesus said. No, he blew and you were born again, received the gift of faith, and then you responded. Do you know that? Your salvation is the initiative of the saving God. And I know minds now will be going to, wait a minute. If that's the case, what about this and what about this? Now just hold for a second, because this is Jesus said this. This is, this is not controversial doctrine. He said it because he wanted us to know, not... All the questions. The questions are important. We need to come to them, but we mustn't lose in the questions the truth. God initiates, and he saved me. Can you say that? I didn't save myself by faith, repentance. I've done it. Thank you. He saved me. He swept in. That's what the kingdom does. And Jesus models this in his ministry. Yeah, there were times where, as we've seen, people came to Jesus, and they said, come and heal me. And he said, all right then. Actually, remember what his mission was. No, no, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns too. He's always taking the kingdom to new places. He's going to them, not waiting for them to come to him. Maybe for you, you know individuals who you're very concerned about here as a Christian. You've got friends, different situations about them. You're concerned. You want Jesus to, to be in their life. And so you pray for them at home. Maybe you tell your life group and your life group's praying for them. But actually what you're doing is you're waiting for that moment where they'll come to you and say, 
oh, look, tell me about your faith, or I've really seen this in you. Can, you, can I come to church? Maybe you're waiting for that. You know what? Sometimes that happens. God's gracious. But that's not how the kingdom usually works. I'd ask you, take the kingdom to them. Ask the question. Give the invite. Intentionally invite them to, your, to, to introduce them to your other Christian friends. Take the initiative. Perhaps for you it's more of a culture thing for you, a bigger picture thing. I, I hope I, I'm talking to a number of people here who find it reasonably disturbing the, the direction our nation is taking at the moment. Let's be clear, it's not one issue, this. Often some other things put like, if that one bit of legislation doesn't go through, fantastic, revival hits the land. No, we've got to realize that bird has long flown. The last 50 years in our country, every piece of legislation and the, the whole tide of the force of the media has been leading us away from God's wisdom in his word. That's where we've got to today. And I'm disturbed, but I'm concerned by that situation. I, I hope many are. But if we're concerned, what are we going to do about it? There's also talk in Christian circles of engaging with culture. It's a great little phrase. What do you mean by engaging with culture? Do you mean I should understand my culture? So I should really do some sociology and understand Generation X and Y and Z and all that stuff. Is that engaging with culture? Is engaging with culture kind of tends to be putting forward the Christian option and saying, look, there's lots of options. Yeah, Christianity, you know what, it's all right. You can consider it. It it might be good. And putting it on the plate, just making sure it's, it's there and visible. Well, that actually might be what people mean by engaging with culture. However, this is what the kingdom of God means with engaging in culture. It means setting the kingdom of God visibly, intentionally, on collision course with our culture. Taking the kingdom of Jesus, this kingdom of life and joy, and bringing it forcefully, and it will take intention to the kingdom of this world. And practically how that happens is by Christians taking initiative to get out of the church setting and bringing the kingdom into the culture. It means Christians getting involved in politics. As rubber hits the road, we can pray about this stuff, but this is what it means. If this doesn't happen, it's not gonna, nothing's going to happen. It means Christians getting involved in the arts. You know, I say, wait a minute, those are murky worlds. If we get involved in that, you know, there'll be compromise, there'll be problems. It won't be easy. Yeah, absolutely right. But who ever told you that Christianity is meant to be easy? Christianity is about taking the kingdom of God to a, a completely hostile kingdom in the power of the Spirit. That's not easy. It's exciting. It's an adventure. And it is, uh, I was going to say doomed to victory. That's the wrong word. But bound to victory. But you know, it's not easy. But yeah, we've got to do things like that. It's dangerous. We've got to go to those places. It, it means also people becoming so good at their jobs, Christians, that they gain a voice into their communities. Some people will be asking here, and you might well have come to conclusions on this one already. Should I, do I really have to take my job seriously? I mean, Johnny, my job, it's in the world, you know, and the church, that's important stuff. That's eternal. It's always going to be there. So actually, what I do at church, that's the most important stuff. So my job, I do it on the side, but, you know, I'm not taking that too seriously. I'm not taking that promotion. I don't really care about spending too much time making that quality. Well, actually... Within that whole, if that's kind of the way your mind's going on that, that's the whole problem. Yes, the world is passing away. But let's be clear on this, what we mean by that. That means the world is going to the dogs. It's going down the plug hole. Jesus, the Father, did not look at the world and see the the depravity of the kingdom of the world that had conned people into thinking they were independent and fine, but actually was, was leading to destruction and just say, well, you know, 
It's passing away. Let's just sit here with the angels. We'll be here forever. You didn't think that. No, no. He sent in the kingdom of God. For us, I challenge you. God, do the same. Let's get into our workplaces and let's see the kingdom bringing the kingdom. Jesus crash, bang, wallop into the kingdom of this world. So for the last point then, we see, first of all, we saw these two kingdoms, the backdrop of the message of the kingdom of God. Secondly, we see the interaction, which is the kingdom of God takes initiative. And thirdly, we see the end result, which is the kingdom of God replaces the kingdom of the world. Verse 16, great fear swept the crowd and they praised God saying, a mighty prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people today. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding countryside. Sorry, must have got muddled in my notes here because I could have sworn there were two crowds here. Now, I don't know, let's just check this. There's a Jesus crowd, there's a funeral crowd. So when it says in verse 16, great fear swept the crowd, what's, what's it talking about? The crowd, who's the crowd? What's happened here is this. There's only one crowd now. The Jesus crowd has swallowed up the funeral crowd. He's right that. It's, it's a nice touch. Nobody is mourning anymore in this crowd. Nobody is weeping anymore in this crowd. Everybody's full of joy. Everybody's full of hope. And everyone has recognized the king. Look, look what they say. God has visited his people today. A few minutes ago, they were, they were wailing at utter hopelessness, looking at the world in its most hopeless form. And now they're saying, God's visited us. He's come. He took the initiative. He's come in here in the person of Jesus. The book of Revelation is a puzzling book in many regards. But where some of the details confuse us, the bigger picture is very clear. It shows us where history is heading. And in Revelation 11, verse 15, John, who writes the Revelation, he describes something that an angel is going to chant out over everybody. Everyone's going to hear this. It's Revelation eleven fifteen. It says this, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's where it's heading. That's where it's going. Jesus promised that his kingdom would grow, but he didn't mean... At the moment, you know, there's not much of a kingdom of God going on. Big kingdom of the world. And one day, guess what? If we play our cards right, we might even be about as big as the kingdom of the world. We're going to be about the same. Maybe we might just overtake and we might be a slightly bigger circle. And that's not what he meant by that. What he meant was this. The kingdom's come and it's going to grow and it's going to grow and it's going to grow. And ultimately, it will replace the kingdom of the world. It talks in Revelation about the old things won't even be remembered. It will be like, at this point, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And people will go, the kingdom of the what? Do you remember? The kingdom of the world? What was that? Weeping? What was, what was weeping? Death? I remember something about, nah, that must have been a dream. No, that's how thoroughly the kingdom of God is going to replace the kingdom of the world. The news is this, Jesus wins. The kingdom prevails. It's not just called, Jesus didn't go from town to town preaching the news of the kingdom of God. He came preaching the good news. And here is the good news. It's the good news. Jesus wins. Is that good? I like that. I think that's good. There's a slight, slight set up there, slight reticence. Is it good news? I bet you, for some of you, this is what's going ahead. You know, I've heard this. I've heard this before. I've heard this about the kingdom of God coming in the future. That's fine. I, I kind of believe that, I suppose. That's what you believe as a Christian, don't you? But is this the kind of good news that sounds great in a sermon, 
It's kind of the point where it goes, yes, and now let's have a response, and amen, if we were in a Pentecostal church. Is that, a, is that the kind of thing? Or, or is this the kind of good news that actually really makes a difference in the real world? It's an important question. It, it's fine to say one day that Jesus' kingdom will prove more powerful than the kingdom of this world. One day, Jesus' effect on human history will be seen to be more decisive than Adam's. One day. Yeah, but what about tomorrow? It's the same question, really but I think it's a bit more pointed. What about when you collide with the kingdom of the world in the real world? Can Jesus cut it then? Is the kingdom of God really more powerful then? Let's finish by just putting ourselves back in this crowd and rewinding to the beginning of the story again. Let's see how this plays out in the story because I think this question is in their mind here. Imagine the moment. You're in Jesus' crowd. It's all excitable. There's loads of you know, like pump in the air, Jesus, yes, this is great. You come around the corner and suddenly there's a shush, the hush descends on the crowd. You, it's a, there's a slight <laughs> disparity between the moods in these two crowds. You see the funeral procession. I think sometimes you think the disciples at this point would be like this. They'd be rubbing their hands. Hey, let's send in Jesus. Watch him go. Look at what Jesus can do now. You're lucky we've turned up on the scene, funeral people. I don't think that's what it would have been like at all. I think as the hush descended, there would have been this dropping of the Spirit saying, a minute ago, Jesus was the king. Is he the king now? Flipping out, this is a big one. Let's face it, these disciples had never seen Jesus meet a challenge like this before. Most of the, the ones before, as we've said, they were all on home soil. Jesus was very good in Christian meetings. He could do it. What's he going to be like? Does he even operate on the open road? Is there a question, is he even going to just skirt around the edge? No, I don't do things like that. Don't be silly. We need to get to a meeting. Then bring them there. Get him to bring the dead son there. And it must be noted, it's obvious, but it must be noted, this boy isn't sick. This boy's not under the influence of an evil spirit. This boy's dead. It's his funeral. None of the Jesus crowd have ever seen Jesus do a miracle on this level before. I think there would have been a feeling that perhaps it would be best to manoeuvre Jesus around the edge. You know, like bodyguards in, in, in a kind of Hollywood films, like the president. Like, Mr. President, there's nothing to see here. Let's move around. Don't want to disturb you with this one. Phew, we're out the other side. Let's get celebrating again. Hey, there's nothing to dampen our enthusiasm. Now, I think that would have been the tendency. Do you ever feel like there's moments like that in your walk with Jesus? You're caught up in the Jesus crowd, maybe in the morning, the church, maybe at life group, maybe you went to Catalyst Festival, 3,000 people worshipping God. It's like, yes, Jesus is here, the Spirit's here, the, I can feel the presence of God. And then on the way home, or the next day, or the next week, suddenly you crash, bang, into the real world. Someone phones up from your family and says, your uncle's taken an overdose. You're at work, and uh, one of your friends comes to you and says, my wife's left me take my three kids what can I do you look around you at the, the the people who you're starting to meet who are weighed down under lifetimes of of addiction of abuse of mental health problems and suddenly you wonder is this just all hype that we're involved in here is Jesus okay as long as we stay in the synagogue or in Simon Peter's home but he's totally out of his depth on the open road when he meets the world head on, in its full force like this. Is this kingdom talk all good for a bigger motivational kind of, kind of sermon, but utterly irrelevant when it comes to the real life world? I've asked that question before. Some of you may be there today. 
What's brilliant about this passage? This passage isn't theory. This story isn't theology in a kind of vague sense. Now, this is a real event. This in name is a test case for the effectiveness of the kingdom of God in the real world. And in this little village, let's face it, Jesus emphatically showed that the kingdom makes a difference in the real world. The kingdom of God can face the horrors of tomorrow, just as in the future, one day, it will replace them. Let this passage fuel your faith. Can you think of individuals who you just think their, their lives are such textbook examples of the kingdom of this world. They're, they're marked with tragedy. They're, they're set on a course. That it looks impossible for them to be rescued from these habits they're involved in. Well, look at this passage and look at this widow and see Jesus at work in the real world. If you can do it, you might be thinking, well, look, no, you can do it for people like that. Obviously, those kind of people come on Christians. They can be changed. Those kind of people can, but no, you don't know this person. And the temptation maybe for you is to skirt Jesus around the edge of that situation. Look, I am not even going to pray for this person. Because Jesus, I'm not sure Jesus can cut it. So Jesus, come on, head down. Nothing to see here. Let's go and wait till somebody comes in to a service. Look, feed on this passage. Let this passage fuel your faith. And then as it does, and you see what Jesus does in the real world, take, do not skirt Jesus around the edge. Take him into those situations in faith and see what happens. Because I can't promise you that as the kingdom of God advances in your experience, as you take Jesus to the world, the kingdom will advance in exactly the way you expect or in exactly the time scale you would like. But listen, I know this. I, I know some things here. And we stand on them. I know that the life of Jesus' kingdom is more powerful than the death of this world. I ask you, do you know that? Secondly, I know that one day that angel will cry, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. I know that. I stand on the truth of scripture on that. And I put those two things together and I say, well, for that to happen then, there will must be countless examples in the real world of like the widow of Nain, where the kingdom of God comes and dramatically overturns a situation in one small area here, one small life here, one thing here. Let's stand on the truth of this. Let's let this story fuel our faith and let's take Jesus to those areas around us and maybe those stories can be in our lives too.